We're going to do something a little bit different this morning, um, and, and I thought that it would be really helpful for us um, to just start off our morning um, by reading the passage that we're going to be breaking down uh, in the very beginning. And so if you guys have your Bibles, um, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Um, and for those of you guys that don't um, have access to a Bible, um, the words will be up on the screen. So please follow along with me as we read God's Word. Acts 2, verse 1 begins with saying, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. As we continue on, um, please join me in prayer again. Let's pray. Dear God, it's our prayer, again, that you show us our sin and our deep and desperate need for Christ. We confess that we're only able to come before you through the blood of Jesus. So for that, Lord, Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you meet us wherever we are today, both geographically and spiritually. Some have come here this morning broken sick, some worried, some angry, some at their wit's end. So we we pray that your comfort, your peace abound in their lives. May you bring them hope and satisfaction that only comes from you. Lord, we, we also pray for our visitors here this morning who do not know you. Or maybe they know some things about you because they've heard and encountered other Christians who aren't living their their life in you. Um, Lord, Spirit, guide their heart to draw them to the real, authentic you. 
draw them to your grace and your love this morning through the reading of your word, through the study of your word, and the application of your word. Lord, uh, we pray for our neighbors, both locally and globally, as we've prayed before, who, who have yet to sing your praises. Again, we pray with the psalmist when he wrote, may your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you. Embolden our church here on 21st Avenue to be known as a sending church, a missional church, a Christ-proclaiming church, a discipling church. Guide us to be the church that makes much of the Bible much of Christ, and much of the mission that you have commissioned us for your glory. In the power of Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 If you're new with us, if this is your first time gathering with us in a long time, um, just to kind of bring you up to where we are this morning, uh, we've been journeying through the book of Acts, Um, as we started this new series entitled Becoming His Church. And Acts, the book of Acts, here in the New Testament, it's uniquely significant uh, for two reasons. It's uniquely significant because, first, um, it's the first record of church history. And it's also significant, the book of Acts, because it allows us to have a much greater, fuller understanding of other New Testament books, um, like the epistles, for instance. So if you're familiar with us, if you were here when we're doing our Galatians series and um, the road to the kingdom when we're kind of going through the book of Romans, um, you would remember that we would come back time and time again uh, to find connection points to the book of Acts. And so it's because of this that the importance of the book of Acts cannot be overstated because Acts enriches our understanding of the information found in other New Testament books and the mission of the church as a whole. It's also very important to understand where we are, because it's one thing to just talk about Scripture, but it's another thing to learn how to apply it. So where are we today? Where do we live? It's important for us to talk about the mission of the church, because we live in a time where many churches, out of fear or even just out of self-preservation, they've redefined their mission. And if you don't believe me, one of the telltale signs of a church that redefines their mission, if their mission is off, um, look at a church's budget. By viewing a church's budget, you'll get a picture of what the church finds most important to engaging with their mission. Let me give you some bad examples. Out of fear of losing visibility within the community, some churches have budgeted large amounts for expanding projects, building projects. That's seen in their budget. Out of fear of losing a good standing with the next generation, Some churches have budgeted large amounts of money to entertain droves and droves of otherwise disinterested people. They got the people, but their mission is off. Another bad example, out of fear of seeming disconnected from God, 
Some churches have budgeted large amounts of money to choreograph and counterfeit supernatural spiritual moments. Now, I'd just be curious to find out how much some high-production churches pay for their gold feathers and smoke machines to fabricate the presence of God with glittery clouds and gold feathers. They've lost the mission of the church, and it's seen in their budgets. What would, I just have a bunch of questions, what would the mission field look like today if these budgets, possibly multi-million dollar budgets in churches, if these budgets were mission-heavy plans rather than self-preservation plans? Would there be more missionaries in Japan proclaiming the gospel and the rest of East Asia? Would there be more evangelists reaching the sheikh of Bangladesh and the Brahmin of India? Would we have more heralds reaching the Turks? Would we have a seminary here in Hawaii? We need to remember that the church is not a business. It's not this building that we congregate in, and it's not a humanitarian nonprofit. It's not a club that sings club songs, gathers together and plays the club fees, sings the club anthem, and then goes back home feeling good that they're part of the club. The church is not any of these things. The church is a people, a people who have been saved by the grace of God, who have been commissioned to reach the ends of the earth with one message, that Christ died to give new life to anyone who trusts and believes in him. The text we'll be studying this morning records how God enabled his people to carry out their assigned mission through the giving of the Spirit. How? As one. Goes back to the mission. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Coming of the Spirit, and again, we will be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Just some brief background behind the book um, of Acts, if you guys weren't here a couple weeks ago. Um, historically, it's understood that the book of Acts was written by Luke. Um, Luke was a friend and travel companion of the Apostle Paul, and uh, Luke is a Greek name. Um, in fact, Paul's reference in Colossians 4.14 seems to indicate that Luke, who's writing this book, was a physician, which gives reason to why he would give such insightful detail to the Jesus' healing miracles, and if you were here last week, why he would give so much interesting details about the corpse of Judas Iscariot in Acts 1, 18 and 19. Paul also seems to indicate in Colossians 4, 14 that Luke is a Gentile, that he's not Jewish, um, and that would possibly make Luke the only Gentile writer. Um, and there seems to be ample evidence that the book of Acts was authored near the end of, Falls, uh, of Paul's first imprisonment uh, in Rome uh, in 61-62 AD. And um, just another quick thing is the book of Acts um, is kind of Luke's part two of the historical records of Jesus. Part one being the gospel according to Luke, where Luke records what Jesus began to do and teach. And then here in the book of Acts, it's kind of part two, where it records what Jesus continued to do through his spirit and his apostles. Just like part one, Luke carefully, carefully investigate, investigated eyewitness accounts. And they were given and offered 
as orderly accounts to this guy named Theophilus. If you were here um, a couple Wednesday nights ago, we talked about who, who is Theophilus. Um, in Greek, it's God's friend. It's this guy who possibly could have been a Roman official um, who was taught initially about Jesus and Christianity, and he was intrigued. So he sought more detailed information about Jesus. And so therefore, some scholars believe that Theophilus, who is receiving the book of Acts, um, just wanted to know more about Jesus. And so he funded Luke to go look for more information about Jesus from eyewitnesses. This morning, we're going to focus on what one scholar says marks a turning point in the history of God's kingdom, the birth of the church. And this turning point is evidence in the heavy contrast between just chapter one of Acts and chapter two. In chapter one, Jesus' disciples, as you remember from the past couple weeks, Jesus' disciples were told to wait for the giving of the Spirit. But in chapter two, the Holy Spirit is given. In chapter one, we see the equipping of the disciples, but in chapter two, we see the empowering of the disciples. In chapter one, we see the disciples were held back. In chapter two, the disciples were sent abroad. Chapter one, we see Jesus ascended. In chapter two, we see the Holy Spirit descended. This is where we find our place this morning in Acts 2, verse 1. And again, it starts off with, in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. My first exhortation for you guys this morning is gather together expectantly. Gather together expectantly. His church obeys together as one body and trusts together as one body. I want to draw your attention to this. Look in this first verse how Luke begins this section of the text. Um, he, he begins by identifying that this event took place when the day of Pentecost arrived. And, and this is very significant because it helps us understand the latter part of this passage. Uh, the, the Pentecost was also known um, as the Feast of Weeks or the Day of First Fruits. Um, in, in Greek, Pentecost literally means the 50th um, because it was the 50th day after they celebrated Passover. Um, therefore, when it was called the Feast of Weeks, um, think about um, seven days in a week. Um, so seven times seven, a week of weeks. Um, is 49 days. So the 50th day, the day after the week of weeks, we see the Pentecost. And so that's why the text says, um, arrived, because it finally has arrived, the 50th day. Why is this significant? Luke wanted his readers to understand that Jesus was crucified during the time of Passover. And we see that all this time has now been fulfilled, where Jesus gives his promise, and he's going to fulfill it. And so the people gather together and wait for God to come. After Jesus ascends, how did they respond? For the next several days, after he was crucified, after he was resurrected and for 40 days taught about Scripture and taught about who he is. After he ascended, for the next several days, the disciples 
follow Jesus' instructions by returning back to Jerusalem, verse 12 and 14 of the first chapter. They gathered together in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together, and they gathered around the teaching and application of God's word. It was at this time that Luke notes it was the day of Pentecost had now arrived. Luke explains also that they were all together in one place. Who is Luke referring to with the word they? You know, why are they gathered? Where, where is this place? Many questions can be asked. But the details about the group and the location seem to not be Luke's major focus in this verse. So what was Luke focusing on here? He was focused on when the event occurred and how they were gathered. Verse 15 kind of clues us in that it was about 9 a.m. of the day of Pentecost when this event happened. And it's possible that by using the word they, that Luke was referring to the 12 apostles, but it's much more probable that it was the 120 that we see in Acts 1.15. Some scholars believe that this one place that we see in the first verse, literally the same, is referring to the upper room where the 120 were gathered to pray in Acts 1.15. Chapter 1 gives us two, two reasons why they gathered. They were gathered expectantly out of obedience to God's instructions, and they were trusting Jesus to provide what he had promised. This is what it means to gather expectantly. Obeying the words of God, the instructions of God, and, and trusting him to provide. You know, when, when I was in college, um, I was in Dallas, Texas, and I had the opportunity uh, to lead worship at a church in the northern part of Dallas, um, where the aristocrats are, <laughs> you know, and uh, this was a church that my friend told me, he swore uh, by me, saying that this was a very healthy church, and so we arrive there, um, we lead uh, a few worship songs in the first part of the set list, um, and when we were finished leading worship, it was a very lengthy worship set. Um, we sat down to listen to the pastor's sermon. But man, my heart sank as the pastor stumbled through a 10 to 15 minute long onset of obscure phrases, catchy slogans, and apologetic statements like, well, you, you know this already. Then they called us back up uh, to lead another lengthy worship set to follow, to make up for the time that the pastor didn't fill. When I asked some of the church members um, you, you know, what, they, what they thought about the service that day, um, they would all say the same memorized phrase. It was really eerie. Um, they would say, it was wonderful to be in God's house on the Lord's day. So when I asked my friend on the side, what, what he meant by this was a very healthy church, he answered with comments about the size of the church. It was close to about 1,000 people. Um, he, he made comments about the huge structure of the buildings um, and the worship hall, and he also made comments to the fact that the church had many wealthy donors. When I asked my friend why the pastor seemed ambiguous and somewhat incoherent, um, he simply just chuckled. Um, he explained that the pastor, almost 50 years old, um, was suffering or had suffered from a stroke about four years ago, um, which left him fairly, um, fairly clouded 
um, in his thinking and processes. Um, and, and he explained to me that the pastor, um, after he came back um, from the hospital um, and fully recovered, uh, when the pastor asked his people um, if he needed to step down, actually telling him that he needed to step down from his role, the church decided to keep him on board, knowing that they could now sit back and relax. They could take it easy. No more challenging sermons. No more guilt for doing whatever they wanted. They could now take it easy and live comfortably. Instead of telling him that he's unfit to lead and teach, they simply went along with whatever he felt like teaching that morning, even though it was poor, because they simply wanted comfort. They simply wanted convenience. No more challenging sentiments from the pulpit. No more investing in other people's lives. No more outreach or laborious group travel plans. Just great moments of gathering together, singing catchy, upbeat songs with stage lights and fog machines galore. And then everyone would just go home and feel good about themselves. Their trust was only in themselves Their aim was absent. Their comfort was in their money. Their mission was abandoned. That church's apathy and selfishness, that would have confounded this group that we see in verse 1 in the early church. It would have been foreign to them, that concept of how they carried out church. So church... I want to remind you, we must gather together expectantly. We do not gather out of hollow obligation. We do not gather out of vanity and a desire to build ourselves up. We do not gather to make ourselves feel emotions or even to just make bank. We gather expecting God to move mightily and make himself known as we trust and obey him. We need to be a church family that gathers. Hebrews 10.23 tells us that we need to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the writer of Hebrews even says that we need to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So church, wandering Christian, all the way to the faithful follower, gather together expectantly. Luke continues in verse 2 saying, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at how Luke describes this event. He employs this word suddenly in the fact that they were sitting, describing that they were caught by surprise. It is important to remember that Luke is not providing a formula. It's also important to remember that they did not induce or invoke the Spirit to manifest itself just because they prayed or tarried or met the right spiritual requirements. No, this was the beginning of God's church, his church, 
and the fulfillment of his promise in his sovereign timing. The same timing that willed Jesus to ascent willed the Spirit to descend on each one of them. On Wednesday night, we talked about how amazing this moment is. Why is it so amazing? This is God's Spirit. This is God. This is the Spirit of the triune God who has made himself now accessible to sinful man, not through another ritual, not through another sacrifice, not through another priest like in the past, but through Jesus. Hebrews language, Hebrews 7, 27, the great high priest Jesus, the perfect sacrifice Jesus, the lion and the lamb that we saw in Revelation at the end in December. In fact, look at the parallel statements of Luke's construction here. They came, or there came the sound from heaven. It filled the entire house. Divided tongues appeared. It rested on each one of them. They were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in other languages. Luke is emphasizing something here in this passage. Luke is emphasizing the objectivity of this event. This was not a subjective, emotional experience that was left to mere opinion and happenstance. They all heard the Spirit. They all saw the Spirit. And all 120 of them that were there were demonstrating the Spirit's work through the speaking in other tongues. And and Luke here in this section, Luke was intentionally using metaphoric language to describe transcendent realities with earthly metaphors. Look at the way that he uses rhetorical language like simile and comparative adverbs, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Um, The NIV translation says that they saw what seemed to be, or here in the ESV, as of tongues of fire. Luke does a lot of really interesting things here. You can also see how Luke used words with double meanings that would have been very obvious to this first audience. He uses the word pneuma, wind and spirit, and the word glossa, which means tongues or language. And this was a connection, again, that Luke knew his audience would see. He was using references to Jewish history where the breath and the wind of God, God's spirit brings life. When we see in Ezekiel 37, 9 through 14, where God's Spirit brings life to a valley of dry bones. And Luke again points to another theophany, a theophany, a a visible manifestation of the invisible God, when he uses fire. One of the most common theophanies that we see in the Old Testament is fire. In the desert of Midian, God spoke to Moses through supernatural fire, a burning bush that was not consumed in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 13, we see how God led Israel, his people, through the desert by night with a pillar of fire. Fire was also seen at the top of Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. This, this fire was supposed to be representing the transcendent power of God, the majesty of God as he gave his people his good law. And these were all references that depicted God's presence with his people, the nation of Israel. But now, now here in Acts chapter 2, and now here in 2022, God's presence 
rests on every believer in this text, each one of them. This is the truth for all believers today. If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have truly repented of your sin and believed in Christ's saving work, Scripture tells us that you have been baptized with His Spirit into one body. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see that in Ephesians 4. In other words, the Spirit of God dwells in you permanently. Uh, on Wednesday night, um, Stan the Man, um, it was really, really helpful for us uh, whenever uh, we we're talking and discussing about different interpretations of what it means to be spirit-baptized. Um, and I loved um, the dialogue that we shared. Um, Stan shared, you don't just get part of the Spirit. You receive everything in full from the Spirit that you will ever get upon becoming a Christian. What Stan did was he was, he was using passages of Scripture like Ephesians 1.13, Galatians 3.2, that tells us that God doesn't just give us part of his spirit when we become believers, and then somehow that amps up. No, when you become a believer, you're baptized into the spirit because you're baptized into the church as a whole. You are given the spirit of God in full, permanently. Therefore, the filling language that Luke uses here means that with the giving of the Holy Spirit, they surrender to the work of God. They fully participated with the Spirit's work. They gloried in the work of God. In other words, they worshiped. And get this, how did they worship? They did it all together as one. If you're a believer gathered with us this morning, I want to exhort you, the second point, glory in God together. How? Worshipfully. For many Christians, um, this is a very familiar passage because it speaks of the giving of the Spirit and it speaks of the birth of the church. But one thing, one thing is often missed with this over-familiar passage and it is that the experience was never meant to overshadow God and his mighty presence. In other words, if the Christianity that you've run into was simply people chasing after experiences rather than God, you've probably seen a lot of hypocritical behavior. Why? Why is that? Because the chasing after experiences it's only focused on the individual, only in self-glory. Luke here in this text was not describing a formula. He was not describing their emotions and how the disciples felt. No, he was describing, or he was not even describing the spiritual elite Christian. Luke here is actually describing this historic event where everyone that was present, both now and in the future, will receive the Spirit of God. Why do they receive the Spirit of God? For a, a get-out-of-hell free card? For a feel-good moment about their progress? Or maybe to brag about themselves to others? No. They receive the Spirit to guide believers 
work in them, work through them to transform them for the salvation of the many around them who do not know God. This is all for God's glory, not simply our experiences. In fact, uh, the Spurge once said, you will never glory in God till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Church, glory in God together, worshipfully. What was the product of these disciples being given the Holy Spirit, and what was the result of God's promise fulfilled? Luke continues in the middle of verse 4. I'll go ahead and read from the beginning. Um, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews and uh, Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then we see this list, and then our response. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Luke records the result of them receiving the Holy Spirit of God. And that these Galileans began to tell the multitudes of the mighty works of God in their own languages. How did the multitudes respond? Look at the words Luke uses here. They were bewildered. They were amazed. They were astonished. Why? Because they were hearing them speak, each in their own language. I love how Daryl Bach states it. Um, he, he says in comments, God is using for each group the most familiar linguistic means possible to make sure the message reaches the audience in a form they can appreciate. In a real sense, God is bringing the message of the gospel home to those who hear it. Just another quick story, uh, whenever I was studying in Texas, there was nothing but thick southern accents um, to the point where I couldn't really understand what they were saying. Um, But I'll never forget one day on campus. I'll never forget, out of nowhere, um, I'm at the recreation center, and I heard someone on campus talking pigeon. Can you imagine how excited I was? I ran over to this lady at the front desk of the recreation facility, um, and I was like, tell me something else. (laughs) Speak pigeon. Like, I need to hear it. Um, and, And I found out that she was from Maui, and I was just, I was amazed. Home away from home, amongst a flood of unfamiliar accents and speech, I finally felt like I was home for the first time in ages. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for these multitudes to hear their language. A lot can be said, and a lot has been said and debated about the different interpretations of what Luke means when he wrote things like filled with the Holy Spirit and what it means to speak in other tongues. But for the time that we have here this morning, I want to highlight that this event, this one in Acts 2, did seem to entail coherent and intelligible speech to those who were present in the multitudes. Luke seems to clarify what he meant by tongue with the unambiguous word for dialect or language in verse 6 and verse 8. 
where the Greek word tongue has multiple meanings, dialectos can only be rendered with one thing, a language. In fact, Luke uses this rare Greek word translated to utter or declare, which is uncommon in his writings. We only see it two other times here in the book of Acts. Um, And he uses it in order to explain that this action of speaking was from the Spirit of God. These devout men dwelling in Jerusalem likely referred to the diaspora Jews, um, not simply just people looking to feast. Um, These dispersed Jews were scattered because of the exile, as one scholar put it, whose roots span the nations. In fact, if you look at that list um, in verses 9 through 11, Luke is illustrating the wide scope of languages that were spoken. This is not simply a list of nations. Rather, this list blends together peoples with lands. Peoples, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Romans, Cretans, and, and Arabians with lands, Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and Libya. And this list, it's kind of neat. I'm going to kind of do it so that you guys see it correctly. Um, But this list actually starts in the east and kind of does a clockwise, uh, counterclockwise motion around Jerusalem. And Luke does this to kind of highlight areas where all these dispersed Jews were congregated and lived. This list suggests that Rome had no claim on God's people. These are God's people, and also the universal scope that the gospel reach. Shifting gears just a little bit um, as we move forward, some people interpret and picture this event this way, where the Holy Spirit was given to the 120 in the upper room, and they began speaking in other languages loud enough that people from the street just so happened to hear And this caused a commotion where the people outside became amazed and wanted to know what was going inside and joined them. But the fact that Peter explains to the multitude what took place uh, in verses 14 through 36, next week we're going to talk about that, Um, because Peter actually just goes ahead and explains, leads us to believe that they were in the same place, that they didn't all stay together in the upper room. And many scholars believe that if they truly were in the upper room, they must have left the upper room and then rushed the streets and the temple precincts where the crowds were gathered. In other words, they received the promise of Jesus, they received the Spirit of God, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, they were enabled to boldly proclaim to the nations the mighty works of God. This was bold obedience to fulfill the mission that was entrusted to them. We see in Acts 1.8 that Jesus commissioned them saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see this first part of Jerusalem being reached. Church, we don't just stay in our buildings or in our homes hoping that bystanders will be amazed with the gospel and be interested to come knocking on our doors asking why we meet. It doesn't matter how loud we sing. 
It doesn't matter how powerfully you pray. It doesn't matter how earnest you are in your personal piousness. If you don't go, if you don't reach the lost, if you don't proclaim to the nations about the mighty works of God, how will they believe that they need Jesus and him alone? Romans 10, 14 through 17 gives us a barrage of questions. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And get this, we're not just commanded to do this on our own. The Great Commission comes with a promise from Jesus himself that he will be with you always to the end of the age to fulfill this mission, enabled by God through his Spirit. It is Jesus who enables us to go together with boldness through the Spirit. Church, third exhortation this morning, go together boldly. Go together boldly boldly. My final exhortation um, for this morning, uh, for number four, um, grow together missionally. Missionally. Luke continues in verse 12 saying, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they were filled with new wine. In this final section, Luke communicates a timeless truth. Because spectators have difficulty understanding his church, some will respond with curiosity and others with mockery. Not everyone will respond with interest and a desire to know more about God. One group, out of amazement and astonishment, asked are these not who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own tongues? And the other group responds with mockery. But the fact that 3,000 came to repentance, as we see in, in, in chapter 2, verse 41, seems to imply that there were people who responded with genuine, genuine interest among those who responded with mockery. The fact that even one person would respond to the message of the gospel should give us a missional hope to reach the lost. We need to grow together in our love for the lost in our community. We need to grow together in our willingness to reach the unreached in our nation. We need to grow together in our compassion for the nations. We need to grow together missionally. You know, in the, in the West, especially on an island in the middle of the Pacific, you know, it's easy uh, and we tend to forget about the need for the gospel in our communities, but also all over the world. Um, there's research um, from the Joshua Project that reveals the top five unreached people groups. The Sheikh of bon Bangladesh has a population of 135.2 million get this, with 0% of them Christian. The Japanese of Japan boasts a population of 120.9 million, with only 0.3% of them Christian. 
the Sheikh of India, with over 85.4 million, has 0% Christians. The Turks of Turkey, with 59.3 million, about 0.1% Christians, with about 97% professing to be Muslim. The Brahmin of India, with over 58.8 million, with 0% professing Christianity, who have never heard the hope of the gospel message. We need to, as a church, evangelize and equip each other to boldly, boldly proclaim Christ and Him crucified. We need to, as a church, grow together missionally. As we conclude our time this morning, my first point of conclusion is for all of us. For all of us listening this morning, faithful Christians, failing Christians, seekers, skeptics, doubters, I want to challenge you this morning Gather together expectantly. Don't just gather out of obligation. Don't just gather out of guilt or simple routine. Maybe you're even forced to come here this morning. Or even for the skeptics and the doubters and the seekers, however you ended up here this morning, Come expecting God to move in your heart. I exhort you to trust and obey Him. A personal invitation from Jesus Himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isaiah 55, he quotes from this passage, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Trust him and obey him. If you don't know him, trust and obey him for your salvation, and it's free. Faithful Christians, all the way to the failing Christians, Trust him and obey him together as one body. There's no such thing as an individual Christian on an island. If you don't have a church family, if you're not a member of our church and you're here this morning, I want to encourage you guys, become a member of this covenant community, this church. If you've been trying to do Christianity on your own, There's a reason why you're frustrated. There's a reason why you feel lonely. Be a part of the body. Help us to carry your burdens with you because Christ died on the cross and fulfilled his promise and gave us his spirit to enable us to carry that with you. If you're looking for community, a place to come together and journey with other parents, young professionals, college students, seasoned saints, youth, or kids. We have a place for that. I say that every time I come up to speak here. We have a place for that. Come talk to me about our small group ministry that we're starting. Christians, 
my second point of conclusion, don't just gather, but glory in God together worshipfully. Maybe this morning you realize you've lost sight of who you're glorifying. You realize this morning that maybe you've been glorying only in yourself rather than glorying in God. Experience not about God's presence. Perhaps you're like my friend who worshiped worship music instead of worshiping God through singing. We gather for worship together because his promise was fulfilled through the giving of his spirit. And don't just gather and glory in God. Go. Go together boldly. God has enabled his church to boldly proclaim to the nations about the mighty works of God. Find a way to get involved with the kids' ministry, the worship ministry, the missions involvement team, the media team, the college group, the young adults. Find a way to boldly go and to declare about the mighty works of God. We need to be an equipping church. Finally, church, grow together missionally. And I'll I'll mention this point again. The fact that even one person, one person would respond to the message of the gospel should give us a missional hope to reach the lost. There will always be some who will respond with curiosity and others with mockery. But don't be discouraged individually. Grow with others and go with others to reach the lost for his glory. Grow together missionally.